Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles open to Zechariah chapter 9, we'll be in verse 9, or you can follow along on you version. But uh, as you're turning to Zechariah chapter 9, the Daily Bread, it's a daily devotional. In December 23rd of 1991, they shared the following story. It was December of 1903 when Orville and Wilbur Wright were finally successful in getting their flying machine off the ground at, uh, or off the ground and into the air at Kitty Hawk. They were so thrilled by this, they had finally achieved what they wanted to achieve, that they telegraphed a message to their sister Catherine. And they told Catherine, we have actually flown 120 feet, we'll be home for Christmas. They were so excited about this, they've achieved what they wanted to, they uh, telegraphed their sister and say, guess what we've done? We've flown 120 feet and we are going to be home for Christmas. You got to imagine the excitement that Catherine had uh, with this news of what her brothers had accomplished, and so she decides to head to the editor of the local newspaper and show them the message. And so she gets there and, and, and drops off the telegraph. Hey, guess what happened? And this is what the editor supposedly said. How nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. <laughs> Wonderful. Matter of fact, it is said that on page six of the news uh, that next day, Wright Brothers will be home for Christmas. You see, how sad is this? He missed the big news. For the first time in history, man had flown. But yet, he missed the thing that was right in front of him, the news that was right in front of him. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Like sometimes we just miss what is right in front of us. You know, we miss signs that are right in front of us. We miss uh, news that's right in front of us. Sometimes we just miss things, right? And it seems like life is full of missed opportunities. I am a sports fan, and so I've been paying some attention to March Madness. And one thing I've learned is that missed shots, missed free throws, late turnovers can be the difference in a team uh, continuing on in the tournament and being knocked out. I'm also a football fan, and missed field goals are uh, often the difference in a game, it seems like. And, you know you're either on top of the world if you make a big kick or if you miss a kick, they're already looking for your replacement the next day. Sometimes we just miss things. Have you ever been watching a movie or reading a book and you become distracted and then you try to pick up the book again or you try to continue in the movie and you're wondering, what in the world did I miss? This just doesn't make sense. I must have missed something Sometimes we miss things, and this morning we're continuing in our series on these Easter eggs, these prophecies, a little bit of Jesus. All throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, we see these things, these Easter eggs, these prophecies that are pointing to who Jesus is and what Jesus will do. We've talked about last week the fact that you know Jesus would be this one who would come, who would bear our iniquities, our transgressions. He would go like a lamb before the slaughter, and he would do all of that for us because it was God's will, it was God's plan. 
Well, this morning we're continuing, and sadly, this is a story of missed opportunities. We'll see the promise of a coming king. We'll see a triumphal entry, but more than that, we will see opportunities missed. And so this morning, the thing I want us to look at this morning is what are the opportunities that we are missing in relationship with Christ? And so we're going to start in Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9, and it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see here, right at the beginning, a king is coming. Your king comes to you. Shout, rejoice, your king is coming to you. Who is this king? Well, this king is the Messiah, the long-awaited king that had been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 5 through 7 says this about the king and the Messiah who is to come. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4 tells us, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from, or for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then, or for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And Luke chapter 1, 32 through 33, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And this is the king that is coming to us, and we see that he will come and righteous, and he will be righteous. This word righteous will describe both his reign and his character. He will reign in righteousness, and he will have a character of righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 5-6, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and, in the land, and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. He will be victorious. This word victorious in some translations says having salvation. He is coming to bring salvation. He is coming to bring to his people salvation. And he will be victorious. He will crush the enemy's head. And he will come lowly and riding on a donkey. You see, a lot of times people assume this to be kind of a negative thing that he would ride on a donkey, right? Like you would expect a king to come riding in on a horse and this, uh, this mighty steed and this is going to be the sign of him being a king. But actually, in this day, 
donkeys were seen as an animal fit for a king. Kings would ride in on them, and this would be a symbol or a symbol of peace. A horse would be a symbol of war. A donkey would be a symbol of peace. And so he will be coming in riding lowly on a donkey. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What does this mean? Verse 10, what does this mean? Well, this means that war will be ending. There will be no more war with him. When he brings peace, war will end. Isaiah 2.4 says he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Micah 4.3 says something very similar. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. You see, this messianic king is bringing with him peace, and he's bringing peace into this world. No more war, no more battles between the nations. No, he is coming to bring peace. And it says that this peace will go and this, this kingship will go from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The river here refers to the Euphrates River, Micah 7.12. And that day people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. And the reason he's saying this is he's telling them this kingdom that this messianic king is coming to bring, it is going to be worldwide. It is not just going to be here. It's not going to be just there. It's going to be worldwide, this kingdom. This kingdom will be unlike anything that is a kingdom at that moment. It will be bigger than Rome. It will be bigger than any other kingdom. This kingdom will expand worldwide. And in verse 11 and 12, he says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce to you that I will restore twice as much to you. Not only is he bringing an end to war, but he's restoring his people. And so, this is Zechariah, this is the prophecy. Now, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and we're going to spend a little more time in Luke chapter 19, this fulfillment, we see that he was going to come, he was going to come riding in on a donkey, and he is going to bring peace, and we see a lot of that in chapter 19 of Luke, and we're going to be in verse uh, 28, verse 28, and we're going to start by reading the uh, verses 28 through 36, and it says this, after Jesus had said this, he went ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
And so to look at this passage in Luke and this uh, account of this triumphal entry is what we refer to it as. Uh, we'll have to read uh, some of the other gospel accounts to go with it. And we see here that one of the first things Jesus tells him to do is go into the city and you're going to find a colt tied there. Nobody has ever ridden this colt. Untie it and bring it here. And if anybody asks why you're doing this, tell them that the Lord needs it. Well, Matthew chapter 21, 2 tells us that there will be both a colt and a donkey there. This colt is... Uh, you know, the offspring of this donkey that is there. And so he is going to bring both of them. It makes a lot of sense, right? If this colt is young, it would make sense to bring the mother along with them. It would keep this colt, uh, it would give him a little bit of peace. Hey, mom's right there next to me. It makes sense. And so they go and they start to untie these animals. And as they're untying this colt, its owners ask, why are you untying this colt? The people who went were probably Peter and John, and they go down there and they start untying it, and the owners ask a valid question, why are you untying these animals? Right? Like if somebody came up and started taking your animals, you would be like, hey, what's going on here? Why are you trying to take these animals? Well, they say, hey, the Lord needs it, and so uh, they let them have these animals. These people were probably followers of Christ, or at least they understood the symbology of what this meant. And this was probably done quickly and quietly so the religious leaders would not go after these owners, especially if they are Christ's followers because the religious leaders had already made it known to people, if you follow or uh, you uh, give praise to or you follow this person, uh, Jesus, if you profess the name of Jesus, guess what? You're going to be excommunicated. John 9, 22 tells us that his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Being a part of the synagogue was a big deal, and if they are excommunicated, that is a big deal. That looks poorly on them, and so they don't want to be excommunicated. This probably happened quickly. And so we see that they throw their cloaks on the colt, they put Jesus on it, first time uh, this colt had ever been ridden, and this fulfills this prophecy that we read from Zechariah, and we see that they uh, laid cloaks on the road. This is a traditional Jewish reception for loyalty, and we're also told in John 12:13 that they would also cover it with palm branches this road as they would go through. That leads us into verse 37. And it says this, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God and loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. A lot of stuff takes place here. So they lay down these cloaks and they lay down these branches as he's coming in off of the Mount of Olives. And as he's going through the town, they start to praise Jesus for the miracles that they had seen. And they take from Psalm 118, 25 through 26, which says, Lord, save us. 
grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And it looks like their praise is sincere, right? They're laying down these cloaks. They're laying down these palm branches. They're shouting out, Lord, save us. Blessed is the king who comes. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And their praise seems legit. Here's the problem. Sad truth is, these people here, the ones who are praising their king, they're doing so with the wrong reasons. And it tells us this. They were praising him for all the miracles they had seen. It was the things that he had done that was causing them to praise. It wasn't who he was, it was what he had done. You see, they were looking for a liberator. They were looking for a physical Messiah, somebody who was going to come and deliver them out of the hands of the Romans. And that's just not what Jesus was coming for. And so, they're praising him, but it's done with wrong motives. Listen to John's account of this in John chapter 12, verses 16 through 18. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. Even the disciples who had been following Jesus through all of these things, even they didn't fully understand what Jesus was talking about until his, that moment when he is glorified. They were expecting the same thing. A lot of these disciples that were following Jesus, they weren't expecting this, or this Messiah who was going to come and bring them salvation in a spiritual sense. They were expecting the same things as other people that he was going to liberate them from Rome, from the hands of their enemies. But for others there who are praising and worshiping, it was all about the miracles. These miracles were powerful things. These miracles were important signs. These miracles were things that would point out the fact that this man was powerful. He was powerful enough to stop his enemies. And so they're praising. Then we see the response of the Pharisees in this moment. They are upset and they want Jesus to tell them to stop Please make your people stop praising you. Please stop telling these people to, or, that are praising you to praise you. Think about this for a second. This is the only time in Scripture where Jesus allows the people to celebrate him publicly, openly, like this. And they're getting upset about this. They think he's making a play for the throne. Not the throne that they were thinking. Then they're trying over and over and over again to put a stop to him when you read through the Gospels, yet his hour had not yet come. Over and over again we read this, not yet has his hour come. They're getting frustrated, and they see the people are starting to flock to him. John 12, 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. All these people are praising him, are worshiping him, and they ask him, please make these people stop. They don't want revolt. They don't want outrage. They don't want these Romans to come in and, and punish them because of this. And so they're telling them, please stop. And so here's how Jesus responds to them. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is telling them, hey, if I tell them to stop, I'm still going to be praised. If, if, you, if I tell them don't do this, guess what? Even the rocks will cry out in praise to me. These inanimate objects that 
cannot talk. They'll praise me. And it shows how amazing this king is that even if the people stopped, the rocks would cry out. And then we move into verse 41. And I got to be honest, verse 41 through 44 is very heartbreaking. As I read through this over and over this week, I just kept feeling, man, this is so heartbreaking what happens. This is what he says in verse 41 and following. He says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, even, or if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is an impactful moment we find here in the life of Christ. This is only the second time we see him weep openly, but here's the difference. The first time we see Jesus weep, it's because of the death of Lazarus, and he weeps, but the Greek word there for weep is he sheds tears. There's a different Greek word here for this word wept. MacArthur points it out. He says that the word here would be translated to mean he was heaving. He was sobbing. His body was moving in agonized impulses of gripping sorrow. This is the strongest possible word for grief in the Greek language. Jesus goes up here, and not only is he weeping, he is sobbing, he is crying, his heart is broken, he is pouring out tear after tear after tear. I don't know if you've ever had, I'm sure all of us in this room have had that moment where you've cried just heavy, something has broken your heart, something has moved you, you just cry so much, Nora called it earlier, ugly cry. And that's what he's pouring out, his heart tears, his heart is broken, and this is what he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it is hidden from your eyes. Remember, Zechariah tells us that the king was going to bring peace, but here's the problem. The people weren't listening. The people didn't want the peace that he was bringing. He was going to bring a peace that was even stronger than what they were hoping for, but they refused to believe. They refused to listen. They refused to hear what he has to say. And why does he weep like this? Why does he cry like this? He cries because... He knows the hearts of the people. Mark Moore says it really well. He says, but he knows their hearts. Within five days, many of those shouting Hosanna will change their tune to crucify him. They are committed to Jesus as the liberator king. When he is arrested as a rebel, they will abandon him as a dangerous subversive. They're crying out to him as a liberator, but when he is arrested, they will cry, crucify him, crucify him. They will abandon him in that moment. And Jesus knows, man, if you would just recognize what is in front of you, you would have found peace. But guess what? Peace will not come to you. And then he goes into great detail. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus will go into more detail in this in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. But this is especially heartbreaking when you, if you've studied history, uh, especially, you know, history in that area, you, 
you learn about an event that took place in AD chapter 70. This is just 40 years later from when Jesus is saying this. 40 years later, in AD 70, Rome would come and they would attack Jerusalem. During that time, Vespian was the reigning governor and uh, he would select General Titus. Vespian was actually the general for Nero. And just a few years before AD 70, the Jews will revolt against Rome and now they will pay the price for this. In AD 70, Rome would attack Jerusalem with General Titus leading the helm. And when they go to attack them, when they go to attack uh, Jerusalem, they plan it out so that this action takes place during Passover. And so with Passover coming, they invite everybody in. People flock to Jerusalem for Passover. And so what do the Romans do? They allow them all to come in. But here's what happened. Once they come into Jerusalem, they shut off the borders. They shut off the walls. There's no way out from that moment on. And so what happens? Once they shut off the walls, all these people have flocked into Jerusalem. There's no food. Their food is gone. They, they ate what they had, and now their food is gone. Thus strategically depleting food and water supplies within Jerusalem. No food, no water. They surrounded the city so supplies could not get into Jerusalem, thus causing many, many people to die of starvation. By August of AD 70, the Romans breached the final defenses, and they killed much of the remaining forces that were in Jerusalem. And it's at the same time in August of AD 70 that they would burn the temple to the ground. Their sacred monument, the temple would be burnt down. For the second time, the temple would be lost. And there's a picture I want to put up here. This is called the Wailing Wall, is what it's known as. It's believed that this is the only piece of the temple complex that remains to this day, it would have been a retaining wall that would have been built around the temple to enclose the temple plateau. And then there's another picture right after it. This is known as the Dome on the Rock. It's an Islamic mosque. It likely sits in the spot today where the temple was. Josephus estimated that on, or at this time in 70 AD, 1.1 million people were killed in Jerusalem, although some believe that this is an over-exaggeration. Whether it was less or more, a lot of people died. And how ironic is this? You know, Jesus tells them, hey, you know, if I told these people to stop, the stones would cry out, and yet we see the people choose not to listen. And guess what happens in 70 AD? The stones cry out, but it's a different type of crying out, where Jesus says these stones would cry out for praise. In AD 70, the stones would cry out in their disobedience, in their unwillingness to listen. The rubble of the temple, the rubble of the city cries out to the fact that they missed their opportunity. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And we read this and it's so tragic, it's so heartbreaking, a triumphal entry followed by a missed opportunity. The people are shouting out praise, but their hearts are in it for the wrong reason and they are missing out on an opportunity to truly follow him. 
They're praising God, but they're wanting a, a person who's going to come and liberate them. But then we have the religious leaders here. They're so tied to their religious tradition that they can't see the thing they've been waiting for for so long is right in front of them, and they miss it. They refuse to believe, and Jesus pours out his heart, heartbroken, because these people could have had peace. But they miss the opportunities And here's the thing this morning, let us not fool ourselves. We are no different. We are missing opportunities. This passage shows us a missed opportunity this morning. And we see in our own lives, there are so many missed opportunities. And why? Why are these missed opportunities to be with Jesus? Why are we missing these opportunities to be in fellowship and relation with Jesus Christ? Why are we missing these opportunities? Well, I think there's a couple of different reasons. I think the first reason is we're simply missing Jesus because we're so busy with life. We're so busy with life that we miss opportunities to spend time with Jesus Christ. Think about your day from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. What does your day look like? I bet you could tell me every single thing you have going on. We got to get up and we got to get the kids ready and we got to get them to school and I got to get ready for work and I got to get off in time to go pick up the kids and get them to practice and I got to go to games and then we got to come home and eat dinner or vice versa, flip that around and it's just so much. But then by the time we're done, we get home and we go to bed and that's our day every day single day that by the time we come to saturday or sunday we just simply i gotta relax i don't want to do anything i'm just gonna sit here and watch tv and our life is so filled with busyness that we miss time in his word we miss time spent in prayer we miss time spent in fellowship with other believers and we push ourselves away from god and then we wonder why is life not going the way i would i wish it would Why do I not feel connected with God? Why do I not feel close to Him? Man, we fill our time with such busyness when instead we should use those moments we do have. I get it. Life is busy. Life is crazy. There's always something going on. But what about the moments where we have that we're making time to just spend time with Him? You know, this relationship thing, we have to draw near to Him. It's the same with any relationship, really. If you want to spend more time with your friends, your family, your loved ones, you got to work it out, right? Like you got to make plans for that. If you want to spend more time with your spouse, you make time to, to be in relation with your spouse. You make time to talk with your spouse. How's your day going? How's life going? You make, that, you make time for that. You make time for your friends and your family. It takes work, and it's the same thing with God. It takes time to draw near to Him. James 4.8 tells us, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sometimes we just miss out because we're so focused on the busyness of life. Sometimes, I feel like the reason we miss our opportunity to spend time with Christ is because Sometimes we just simply follow him for the wrong reasons. It's not a relationship we're after, but it's really what we can get from him that we're after. You know, maybe following him will bring us wealth. Maybe it'll bring us a comfortable life. And sometimes we view Jesus as simply a genie in a bottle. But maybe if we follow Jesus, he'll grant all of our wishes. 
things that we are not promised we're following christ we follow christ when it's convenient but at the first sign of trouble we flee you know we're kind of like the seed that's scattered in matthew 13 verses 5 through 6 seed scattered in the rocks and then there's no root and when troubles come we fall away and i want to say something this morning if you are here expecting to follow jesus christ just to be happy and there be no life problems and you're just going to get whatever it is you want from him i gotta be honest you're mistaken c.s lewis said it humorously he said i didn't go to religion to make me happy i always knew a bottle of port would do that if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable i certainly don't recommend christianity And here's the sad truth. Many who say that they follow Jesus will stand before Christ only to find out they never actually knew him and they were never actually committed fully to him. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And thirdly, I think sometimes the reason we miss these opportunities are just like the religious leaders. Many are missing Jesus because they simply choose not to follow him. The proof is there. It's logical to follow Jesus Christ. It makes the most sense to follow Jesus Christ. And yet many will not want to follow Jesus Christ. And the reason being, they don't want the rules that they think it brings with you. To follow Christ brings rules. And I don't want to live my life by rules. I don't want to live my life by somebody telling me what I can or can't do. I want to live life the way I want to live life. If I want that, I'm going to go after that. If I want to do that thing, I'm going to do that thing. And I don't care what anybody tells me. I don't want to live life by other people's rules and sometimes they believe hey if one day the opportunity is there and i need to change then i can do that later i can do that later i can change at any moment any time i can just give this up and follow christ but not now i don't want to do that now and many live their lives this way only to realize that the opportunity has been missed so If we're missing opportunities with Christ, what should we do differently? Well, I think instead we should seek to follow Jesus. We should seek to make Jesus a priority. And again, I understand our schedules are so packed. But when you look at your schedule for each day, what is that time that you could mark in? Man, I really got to get into God's word. Man, I really have got to talk with God because the longer I find myself avoiding praying and and reading his word, the more I find this disconnect. Or maybe it's, man, I just, somebody has been asking me for lunch over and over and over again. You go to lunch with me. Will you go to lunch with me? Will you go to lunch with me? Maybe now is the time to say, yes, I will make a time to go to lunch with you. To talk to somebody who wants to, to, wants to, to see what are you going through? How can I help you? How can I do life with you? Make the time to follow Jesus. We need to seek to follow Jesus. And not only should we seek to follow Jesus, we need to seek to follow Jesus because of what it is that he's already done for us and not what we think we want him to do for us. And what has he done for us? Well, he's brought us eternal life, number one. He's brought us eternity forever with, his fa- or with our Heavenly Father, 
He has brought us an opportunity to live a more abundant life, a more fulfilling life, serving our Father and living for Him every single day. There's no greater life than to live for Jesus and to follow Him with our whole hearts. And how did He accomplish all of this? He accomplished it by going to the cross for us. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and, and as they come up, I want to challenge you this morning to please don't miss your opportunities. Please don't miss the opportunity to be in relationship with him. And maybe you're here and you've not given your life to him. Please don't miss the opportunity. So often we think, I can walk out that door and if I want to follow Jesus Christ later in life, I will have the opportunity to do that. But you are not promised the opportunity to do that. You are not even promised the next moment in your life. So why wait? Don't miss an opportunity to follow him or maybe you're here this morning and you have been following for all the wrong reasons you've been following jesus christ because of what you think you can gain what you can get from him if that's the case i pray that you would turn around and you would spend time talking with him and, and laying that out and following him for the right reasons or maybe this morning you are here in your week if you look back on your week and you look back at you know from last sunday to this how much time did you spend with god how much time were you in his word? How much time did you spend talking with him? Maybe you're feeling disconnected this week because you could tell me, man, my time with him was not very much. And so maybe this morning you need to spend some time with your head bowed, just spending time talking with him. And don't miss the opportunities to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't miss the opportunity, just like the people in, in this triumphal entry, don't miss the opportunities like they did. They had an opportunity to truly worship him for who he was, and they missed the points. And the Jews, man, the prophecy that they had been waiting for had been fulfilled, and guess what? They missed it. They missed the opportunity. Please, this morning, do not miss the opportunity. This morning, if you have a decision to make or if you want to spend time in prayer, please do so as we stand and we sing.